Hello, today joining me is Asaf Mir from Australia. I'd like to introduce his book, Murder in Absentia. This is a fantasy novel. It's a story of togas, daggers, and magic. It's the book Asaf Mir always wanted to read himself. It blends his favorite genres, historical fiction, fantasy, and hard-boiled murder mysteries. Assam intensively researched the culture and practices of ancient Rome as preparation for creating the fantasy world of Agrichia. I'd like to talk a bit about our author himself. Asaf lives in Sydney, Australia with his wife, Julia, four kids, and two cats. By day, he is a software product manager, bringing, bridging the gap between developers and users, and by night, he's writing. He seems to do his best writing after midnight. So I have some questions for you, Asaf. Uh, but first, we're going to talk about your novel a little bit, so anyone listening is going to know what this is about. The setting is Egretia, a town in a fantasy world which was modeled on a Roman Empire, and the occasion is the crime of murder. Felix de Fox, our narrator, is a detective with some extra talents. Not only is he good at winkling out information, watching people, and drawing conclusions, but he's also familiar with magic, both the kind that's allowed in his homeland and a more dangerous, forbidden kind. Magic can be dangerous. Felix's former best friend, now an uncanny beggar with frightening eyes, was a talented sorcerer before things went wrong. When Felix investigates a secret ring of sorcerers that he suspects are responsible for the horrific death of a rich man's son, he is forced to rely on that old friend, as well as a network of associates, his loyal servant, and an alluring damsel or two. So Asaf, one of your novel's strengths is the likable narrator, Felix. Your private eyes describe this way. You strike me as a different man. Honest may not be the right word, but I do not believe you are a charlatan. Is Felix a private eye looking for redemption? And what are his character strengths, in your opinion? Um, hi, well, let me start saying hi, hello, and uh, thank for having me on your podcast. Um, in, in regards to Felix, um, I wouldn't say he's, he's looking exactly for redemption. Um, he definitely wouldn't say that. But... Um, as, as you mentioned, he had uh, some dark episodes in his past. He's not particularly keen on. Um, he did become uh, very cynical as a result of that. Um, somewhat um, understanding the fluid nature of truth when you, when you deal with the people in power. Um, but at his core, I think he is, um, he is a good man. He is trying to do the right thing by his customers. Um, he's trying to do the writing in general that, that comes across in, in some of the um, other stories that, that, that I wrote with him um, where he may not um, may not choose the easy path but, but will ultimately choose the right thing to do yeah, sometimes so, it's like that he does seem to have a way with yeah. the ladies but we understand it's just alluded to that he has a sad romantic history Will he ever find true love? Um, he has already found it. He just doesn't know it yet. <laughs> um, yes, so he has um, some dark episodes, as I mentioned before, um, that um, affected 
his cynicism and, and his approach to other people and affairs of the heart in general. Um, one of the subplots of, of the novels, uh, story arc, the largest story arc than just an individual story is um, his love life, in, in a sense. So, yes, he, he will find true love, um, though the, the path to get there might be a bit convoluted. Yeah, I imagine there's going to be more episodes coming up. Uh, in yes. your story, it starts off with some arrestic images. There's a corpse with a heart turned to a ruby and a madman with one black eye and one green eye that swivels around separately from the black eye. How did you come up with this spectacle? Did you research arcane magic? Um, to answer the second part, yes, I do research um, arcane magic or rather the ancient Roman um, view of, of magic. Um, <laughs> just for my, for my current uh, book, the current work in progress, I've been reading a, a tome with the title of um, Ancient Curse Tablets of uh, Greece and Rome uh, and, and other such, uh, <laughs> yeah, are just such uh, wonderful, wonderful novels. Um, um, but I'd say that those kind of images, the, the the description of Araxas with his, uh, the particular effect that his curse with, with his eyes or the heart and ruby or everything. Um, they're just my um, creative license, <laughs> my, uh, my fancy. So it's just, you know, when I dream up those stories, that, that's part of it. Maybe that's why you like to write at night so those images can come <laughs> out. Yeah, yeah. So, sometimes I like to write the really squishy bits, the, the, the gruesome, um, the gruesome aspects of the tales. Around midnight, yes, that's a good time. Yeah. <laughs> when you discuss your novel, you uh, told us that your first trip to Rome actually inspired you to start writing and to research the world of the ancient Romans. Can you tell us a little bit about that trip and what you saw in particular that really impacted you? Um, that was um, several decades ago, actually, when I, when I was a child. Um, I think I was actually already in love with Rome when we went there, uh, particularly ancient Rome. So I've read, um, I grew up on Asterix comics and I've always loved that, you know, uh, ancient, ancient cultures kind of filter it. Um, when we went to Rome uh, with my parents, I just love skipping around the ruins, going to all the, the uh, archaeological sites and whatnot. And then my parents wanted to see all the museums. And I was, you know, after about, usually after about an hour, I was nagging that, you know, one little cherub looked exactly like another. And if I see one more, you know, virgin looking um, uh, holy on, on, on the painting on the wall, that go mental. So mm-hmm. I just always had this love of history. I think it's um, part of it was growing up in Israel. You can't, you know, walk a hundred paces without getting to some historically uh, significant site. So I just always loved history, and then Rome was, in particular, an, an era that I liked. Yes, what struck me when I visited was I had not visualized the size of those ruins and to, to see them stretching out over an entire hillside and to realize that I could walk there an hour and a half or more and 
being part of ancient Rome, I did find that very inspiring too. And that was one reason I liked your book. Mm, thank you. Um, and, and yes, absolutely. The, the, I think um, I would like to visit Rome again because there are a lot of things that have been uncovered in the intervening decades. Mm-hmm. But yeah, seeing, seeing the grandeur, understanding that these are only the fragments that survived and um, just imagining how it must have been when it was all new and shiny and, and you know, bustling with people um, walking about in, in those uh, ancient colonnades and then temples and buildings. It's inspiring. Yes. Uh, tell us a little bit about the specifics of Rome and Roman society. Like I had never really thought about a toga before, even though I knew that Romans wore one. Is it like wearing a suit and a tie to a formal event? Tell us a little bit about the toga and how it signifies social status. Sure. Um, yes, yeah, so the toga was the formal wear. More than that, only Roman citizens were allowed to wear toga. So it was a bit of a status symbol. Mm-hmm. But um, with everything that we talk about from one house, had to remember that we're talking about, you know, almost two millennia of history from um, 750 BC when Rome was traditionally founded to uh, 1450 when the Byzantine Empire fell to the Turks. Um, and Byzantium always saw themselves as Rome, by the way. They never saw themselves as anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, it spans a, a tremendous um, period of time and then things did change. So in, in the particular era that I'm sort of using to model um, greater about, which is primarily the, the second century BCE, the, um, the toga, yes, it was a formal uh, attire. Only people who had a reason to wear it uh, would wear it. Um, so, for example, politicians going around to um, uh, senators going around to the Senate House or people on important business might wear a toga uh, as a status symbol, but someone outside Rome, even if he was a, a full-blooded, free Roman citizen, might wear a toga twice in his life. Oh, once okay. When he became a, yeah, once when he became a man at 16 and, and had his coming-of-age ceremony, and the other one was probably at his funeral. Mm-hmm. Other than that, they probably wouldn't wear it much. So, yeah, well, it, it, it kind of depended on... on what's your social status, what you do with it, etc. Uh, one thing I would mention is, um, and it's also mentioned in the book, um, toga is not a square bed sheet that you just kind of wrap around you. It had a very particular shape. It's sort of a squashed oblong, sort of like if you slice an egg across, you might get closer, mm-hmm. <laughs> somewhere between that and a square. Um, and then we know that because with the square, you can't quite get the same drapes that you see on statues. So mm-hmm. the statues have the, and, and the descriptions and the surviving literature have a particular way of, of the way that the folds fall around. And you cannot achieve it with the square. It has to be um, this particular shape. It's also very long. It's mm-hmm. about 15 feet on, by 7 feet. Um, too much an average size man. So it was quite big and heavy and cumbersome, which was kind of the point. You, were, you wore it at a 
time of peace, in a, in a sense. You didn't need to um, be very active or, or move around a lot. So, oh, and then you didn't wear any underwear with Toga. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a scene being... that plays in an app, but I won't ruin <laughs> the reading pleasure for anyone. Yeah. yeah, I'll just say that, you know, because it's so heavy and cumbersome, there's just... Uh, and, you, and you do need a slave or someone else to help you put it on. There was just no way of going to the toilet with it. So people ended up just not wearing underwear when they were wearing a toga. So you have to be wealthy enough to have a slave or a servant to put it on you too. Yes, yes. So it'll all be the, the middle class and upwards that would have it. Um, and, um, and, and, only, and you would only wear it when you had the occasion to, because otherwise it would be just, you know, Imagine walking around in a 40 degrees heat in, in the middle of summer wearing a toga. Yes, that wouldn't be very practical. It well, would not. Your novel has several interesting scenes. For one, there's a griffin fight. Uh, griffin is a mythical animal. I'll let you tell us a little bit about it. And I wondered if you were the man who had to fight in a ring, being watched by everyone. This is just kind of a funny question, but would you rather fight a griffin or a werewolf, and why or why not? <laughs> yeah. um, yes, um, so the, the, I mean, the novel being um, a fantasy novel, um, I did decide to take Rome, Roman culture um, more than Rome itself and see what I can play with it. And one of the things was, well, let's look at gladiatorial games and... Um, uh, Let's bend them a little bit, so not just you know gladiators, but you know there were also beast hunts. Um, and well, if we're talking about beast hunts, then why not um, look at some mythological beasts, just as much as, as uh, regular uh, lions and tigers? Um, so, griffin versus a werewolf. I think I'd probably choose the griffin. Um, werewolves are, you know. If you look at all the <laughs> legends, are probably a bit more scary, um, a bit more primal and then evil in a sense. Mm-hmm. Whereas a griffin is, is more of an animal uh, that's trapped. So rather fight an animal than something that's maliciously intelligent. Yeah, I can see that. Well, at the end of your novel, you talk a little bit about your influences and things you've made a reference to, and it turns out that you're a King Crimson fan. <laughs> and I'm sure many people have heard of them, but for those who haven't, King Crimson is an eclectic art band, not one that played music made for the masses. When they started, they explored the boundaries of music and approached their work as an intellectual discipline. And I wondered about you. Are you ever tempted to write less commercial stories? <laughs> um, <laughs> when, when you're talking about in the authors um this is a work of love this is not commercial so well no um, it's not making it less commercial is a bit of is a bit funny um so the, the whole um indie publishing uh world is about you know um i created i wrote a book i enjoyed it i had it uh, professionally produced etc and i put it out on amazon it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to sell and I can retire or, or write more books. It's um, still very much um, a hobby, not something that uh, pays the mortgage. Um, 
I never tried to to be commercial. So when when I sat down to write the novel, it it wasn't about oh let me write you know um, what's considered hot right now and then try to sell it. That that never was the intention. Um, well, let me reword my question in a way that can make it a little more clear what I'm getting at. I love King Crimson, but honestly, I can't even listen to some of their songs because it seems like their songs were more constructed to work out something that they were trying to work out intellectually than to entertain me or than to be accessible musically. I have yeah. a lot of respect for King Crimson, but as I said... Some of their albums I can listen to, and some I can't. And I guess I just meant, is there some part of you that's very edgy, that's really out there, that would be tempted to write something that's inaccessible and that doesn't really fit in any genre at all? Um, I think after writing, you know, the particular historical fantasy mm-hmm. or uh, historically themed urban high fantasy noir detective mystery, if you go with the full label. Um, I, again, I don't try to be inaccessible or overly intellectual either. Um, so I don't strive to either extreme. Um, I enjoy listening to Crim- Crimson as, uh, and I enjoy many other progressive rock bands, uh, you know, Pink Floyd being the probably the most well-known, but, you know, uh, Jeff Total or Hawkwind, etc. Um, when the mood strikes me. Um, other times I might be listening to classical music or playing rock music or um, recent techno music. It d- depends really on my mood. Um, and I think it's the same with the writing. Um, I like, I grew up on fantasy. I really like the, the magic um, mm-hmm. aspects, etc. I love ancient Rome and... and um, as we've discussed, and I like detective stories, you know, anything from Agatha Christie to um, modern thrillers. And then, um, I've read like detective stories that are based in, in real Rome, uh, works like um, um, Lindsay Davis or Stephen Saylor with Downey, or awesome author by themselves that write classical detective set in, in the Roman period. So when I came to um, to write, it was like well, this is the kind of story I want to read. I like those detective stories. I like the ancient Roman setting. And, and I like a little bit of magic in my novel. So I'll just write that because I like that. I wasn't trying to be commercial. And on the other hand, I wasn't trying to be particularly inaccessible. So uh, particularly intellectual or showing things. It was really about, I like this mix. I like these kind of stories. Let it flow. Mm-hmm. That's that's what came out. Well, tell us a little bit about what you're working on right now. So, after I wrote Murder in Absentia, I wrote a few short stories. Uh, they're all freely available on my blog. I wrote them while I was um, working on, on uh, the book production of, of Murder in Absentia. So, um, it, it takes about at least as long um, to write a book as to actually get it ready for publication with all the edit passes, etc. Mm-hmm. So while I was doing all of those things, I just wanted to keep writing. So I had ideas for smaller mysteries that I thought, okay, you know, that's not a full book. It's, it's a, it'll be a shorter story. Um, I also had ideas for, while I was writing, 
or uh, more uh, mysteries, more like full-length books. So I just wrote all of those things down, and I was sort of working through them. So uh, now that uh, you know, Murder in Absentia is sort of established in itself, I came back to writing uh, another full-length novel, which is what I'm working on now. Um, it's titled In Nomina. Mm-hmm. It's uh, a play on words. Um, In Nomina being the, the start of the standard Catholic uh, prayer um, phrase. Um, and Numina being the um, name for the divine spirits of gods in Latin. Um, and the story appropriately talks about uh, gods and magic in, in the world of Felix. So, so we'll be back with Felix again. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Okay. Well, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me.